I think by now all of you have seen that the most necessary quality we need in this practice is patience. Because in fact we can't push this practice. We can't push ourselves to open, but rather we can allow ourselves to open, to grow into an appreciation of the way things are, to learn how to open to this moment as it is. My teacher Upandita used to say that in all practices that you undertake, no matter how much you do, nothing is accomplished if it's not done with patience. Tonight I want to speak about that relationship of patience towards all experience. And I want to do it in speaking about metta, or loving-kindness. For love really is an attitudinal relationship of open appreciation for all of life, rather than a particular relationship to one person. And here in this practice, we really see that our relationship to anything goes better if it's open and tolerant, patient, loving, appreciative, even the difficult experiences that we have to confront or face. There are two qualities to metta that I want to speak about initially. Because metta is primarily a generative action of an appreciative mind. The mind that appreciates or the ability to appreciate experience or oneself or another is really a relationship of respect where we see things as they are, where we see ourselves as we are or another as he or she or it is, not how we want them to be or not for what they can do for us, but rather just how they are, where we learn how to attune ourselves to another's emotions or feelings or thoughts or their beingness or their thingness, if we're talking about inanimate things, where we take an attitude of care and um, nurturing towards experience. In that respect, and seeing things as they are, we really must be free of our own needs, or at least not be blinded by our own needs so that we don't exploit the other or don't use the other thing for our own uh, enhancement, so to speak, but rather just see it as it is. 
And in that sensitive awareness of seeing things as they are, we can genuinely appreciate its beauty or its own perfection or its own pleasure. I don't know if you've noticed, but fall in New England really provides some very special conditions, whether it's the light or the clarity of the air or the color of the leaves. And sometimes they all come together and we're just able to appreciate how things are as we just walk down the road or on the lawn. And yesterday I was walking down to the pond and walking back and nothing special. But in that nothing specialness, it's just very clear, luminous isness of things. Just assuming some perfection in the way that they are. And I realized that the quality of relationship I was feeling to things was one of just appreciating things as they are. Not asking them to be different or expecting them to be different, or to provide something else for me. And in that, seeing things as they are, and appreciating its isness, or its own beauty, there is an active uh, ability to respond to things that way, where we care, for and are concerned for the life of things, the life of beings, the life of plants, the life of trees, the life of ourself. It's as if when we learn to appreciate our own life and the life forms around us, we breathe life into them and they reflect life back to us. The Hawaiian greeting of aloha can mean hello or goodbye. It also means love. And the word ha of aloha means breath. And when Hawaiians of old used to greet each other, they would hug and um, say, I give you my breath. I breathe life into you, aloha. When we learn to and how to appreciate life forms, then we breathe life into it. We see that it is alive, responsive. This is the quality of appreciating or respecting and esteeming the nature of things. The second quality of Metta is that it's an action, it's a generating action. And in that, metta is really a giving more than a receiving. It's a giving of ourselves. Of course, getting the experience of in loveness, but it's primarily um, a movement from us. 
one of the women that I teach with sometime, said that for her, the urge to love is greater than wanting to be loved. And that's really an expression of metta. The urge to love others, to love other things, to appreciate being greater than her own need to feel loved. In that movement towards another of appreciation, when we value others, we acknowledge our relationship to them, or we acknowledge our connection or our interconnection among all beings. And in doing so, when we move towards another with appreciation and feel that bond and connection, then in doing so, we remove our own sense of isolation, aloneness or separateness. And we really firmly place ourselves in the web of life, not outside of it. And if you feel alone and isolated and separate, it's the movement towards others that creates a sense of bonding or connection. And in that movement towards partnership with life, there's a sharing of who you are. As an autonomous individual, independent, but recognizing your interdependence with all other beings without the need to exploit them or to use them for your own enhancement. Metta is an action, an activity. It's not just a passive way of being, nor is it um, just a strong emotional response to someone or something. There are times when we do feel a strong emotional connection or response, and that may or may not be metta, but it's not always that. It's primarily an intentional activity. And in that intention to connect with and to move towards others, we really reveal our own life force, our vitality, our energy, and, and the, the sense or the essence of who we are. To do that, to move towards another as an autonomous being, not out of dependence, requires that we really recognize and feel our own self-sufficiency, that we're not coming from a place of um, unconscious neediness or dependence on the other's response, but rather moving from a sense of abundance in our own life that we're willing and choose to share with others. This 
connection with our own inner, authentic being. is an acknowledgement of the harmony of our inner life or our inner truth with our outer behavior. We can't love if we don't really have it within us. It's not that it uh, comes from the other person. It may, but our own loving comes from the abundance within ourselves, And as such, it implies that we're willing and able to take a risk. We may love, and that love may not be returned. We may open and share and offer well-wishing or our self to another, and it may be refused, it may be ignored, it may be criticized. But when we have that sense of sufficiency within ourself, then that risk is acceptable. Because our love doesn't depend on the response of the recipient. If we looked very carefully at our sense of who we are in the world, who we are as a person or a personality, we would see that much of who we are is determined by the quality of our relationships with others. Joseph Kempel says that at a very deep level, altruism or that unselfish regard for the welfare of others, is an intuitive awareness that relationship is identity. Much of our personal identity is our relationship to others. If you don't like yourself, learn to love others. Metta has these two qualities, an action, a generating action, a generating of uh, intention, in movement out towards others with a quality of appreciating that other thing or being or person. In developing metta, the intention to love or the intention to move towards another requires or is put into action either by thoughts or speaking or physically to somehow manifest that feeling of goodwill, care, or benevolence that we feel, that we wish for another to be happy. And in that movement or in that intention and the wish for others to be happy, we soften our own heart, our own defensiveness, in our own impatience with the faults or the limitations of that other being. Because we all have them. We all have our, we have our own and we can see them in others. And yet, we don't have to wait for another to be perfect before we learn to love them. 
What is it that prevents us feeling love that obscures that quality in our relationships? The opposite of metta is dosa or aversion, non-love. And all forms of aversion, whether it's anger, disappointment, depression, fear, criticism, cynicism, whatever flavor you choose, all forms of aversion have some constellation around a sense of I, me. A limited sense, a holding of myself in relationship to another and pushing away, disliking. And that sense of myself becomes stronger and stronger the more aversion has its free reign. Probably somewhere in this retreat already, when you found yourself caught in anger or aversion or frustration of some sort, you have wondered, what am I getting out of this? Why do I bother to do this? Who's getting anything out of, being, out of my being angry? Obviously the other person isn't being disturbed if you're not speaking to him or writing notes to him. So who's suffering, really, when we're angry? Who can do anything about our anger? Why do we get angry? What has gone wrong? What sense of impotence do we feel that we need to blame someone else for our difficulty, our unhappiness, our frustration? Somehow, or somewhere within all of our relationships of anger, aversion, avoidance, denial, jealousy, envy, fear, disappointment, there's the lack of the understanding that a sense of safety, security, happiness, or love comes from harmonious relationships rather than things. That happiness comes from Sharing rather than hoarding. Opening rather than closing. Connecting rather than uh, withdrawing or isolating. One way we can begin to ameliorate the pain of aversion is to begin to consider the possibility of forgiveness. In Asia, forgiveness practice is quite strong. They do a lot of asking forgiveness and giving forgiveness, often with uh, any meeting or, or, or uh, when, when you're about to leave someone or some place. They'll often forgive and ask for forgiveness. We've all felt hurt by what others have said or done, whether it's been intentional or not. 
And when we can call forth the ability to forbear that pain, that hurt, we begin to recognize that, you know, we and the other person have limitations. We're not fully awake, we're not fully wise yet. And so we might make some mistakes, intentionally or unintentionally. And we can begin to soften our judgment of that person, of that person's behavior, and the apparent intentionality behind it. When we think that someone is acting intentionally to hurt us, it's, it hurts more. If it's accidental, well, it still hurts, but not so much. If we can see that the intentions of the others to hurt are like most of our intentions, unnoticed, then we can have a little space around others' behaviors that hurts us. We can begin to understand that even though they have acted or spoken in that way that caused us pain, they may not have noticed the intention to do so, may not have been aware of the consequences or what the consequences might be. Forgiveness also begins to open us to the possibility that the other has legitimate self-interest different than ours. So that we can begin to soften our blaming of them or our criticism of them without, without giving them free reign to do what they want, of course, I'm not saying that, but to allow them their own means for getting on in their life as long as they don't take advantage of others. We all have the potential to awaken, even those who have hurt you most. They too have the potential to awaken. But until such time as we are all, or until we ourselves are fully awake, then ignorance is going to have its heyday at times. And beings, ourselves included, are going to feel hurt. We don't need to wait until that day in order to begin the process of reconciliation, of letting go of our anger, letting go of our fear, letting go of our disappointment in another. When we ask for forgiveness, when we can honestly and sincerely recognize that we have hurt others, intentionally or unintentionally, and can acknowledge our need for that forgiveness, we acknowledge our understanding that what we have done is unskillful. Acknowledging our limitations of wisdom or lack of it. And when we request forgiveness with genuine humility, it doesn't come from a place of shaming or blaming or humiliation, but rather it's an empowering request for their understanding and patience. Giving them the benefit of your own doubt, they may have the understanding and patience to forgive you. 
allow them or ask them, asking them for that, requires humility to just bring ourselves down a little bit off of our high horse if we happen to be on one. When I was in Burma, I stayed in the, mo in the monastery in the uh, one building that was reserved for foreign men, foreign men and foreign monks. And there was an old man who lived there who was, used to be a judge, actually, under the earlier political regime, but he had left that, his judgeship and had just come to live in the um, monastery when he was 35 or 40, and he was about 70 then. And he was the nicest old man. He was just, he was a cripple. He was really terribly crippled. But he used to do his practice every day, and he was the treasurer, actually, of one organization in the monastery. And he was so nice. He'd do anything for you anytime. And when I, after I'd been there for four and a half, five years, as I was leaving, he came up to me and asked me to forgive him for any slights that he might have inadvertently um, done to me. And I thought, my goodness, this man, he doesn't need forgiveness. I mean, I should be asking forgiveness from him for my, you know, klutziness. But it's a practice that they really undertake in Burma with a lot of sincerity to uh, ask for forgiveness and to give their own forgiveness, especially in any separation so that the parting uh, of people or the leaving of people is left harmonious. Traditionally in practicing metta, the recipients of metta are beings, human beings, animals, uh, seen and unseen beings in whatever realm we can imagine them. And it usually begins with those which are easiest to feel metta for and progresses towards those that are more difficult. But we begin with reflecting on or arousing that feeling of appreciation and love of ourself. Because it's doubtful that we can know how to love another sincerely if we don't know how to love ourselves. How do we know what it means or what it feels like or how to or its limits when we don't know for ourselves? But as we practice metta and we wish another to be happy, it doesn't imply that we know what it is that will make that person happy. Because we all have our own needs, physical, mental, and others. And some, if you, you know, expressed unhappiness, their offer of, of, you know, here, let's be happy, let's go have a drink, might be their way of offering you some happiness. Others might offer you anything. Some will offer you the Dharma and say, this is the way to happiness. This is something that I believe will lead to happiness. 
And sometimes Upandita, with his sometimes stern and even severe uh, demanding uh, presence, um, it sometimes is difficult to believe that his relationship to you is coming from a place of metta, because he is so demanding. But over my years of working with him, I could really see that he wasn't going to be satisfied with any superficial happiness, not just feel-goodism of any sort. He was really asking me or offering me access to the most subtle but the most stable happiness possible. So when we begin with ourself and then extend our understanding of metta or feelings of metta and appreciation to benefactors or noble people, friends, uh, neutral people, uh, difficult people, all beings, uh, other realms of beings. In a mature metta where one has really practiced extensively, metta doesn't prefer one individual over another, even oneself. So that all beings are seen equally. The barriers of demarcation between oneself and all others are removed. So that the love one feels for oneself can also be felt for all other beings. But for some reason, whether it's due to our personal conditioning or our cultural conditioning or just our lack of uh, experience, some of us find it difficult to even feel love for ourselves, let alone another person. And so adaptation in the West has allowed us or has taught us that you know, if you connect with your pet more than you connect with yourself, that's okay. If you connect with a tree more than you connect with your parents or your teacher, that's okay. Use that. Use that tree, use that pet, use that rock. One man that I worked with a couple of years ago really couldn't feel appreciation for anything. But there was one place on the West Coast where he used to sit high on... Uh, the coastline, and look out over the Pacific Ocean and he felt good. He appreciated that ocean being there. And so I asked him to just imagine sitting there appreciating the Pacific Ocean. And when he could feel that feeling and really develop it strongly, I asked him to take his best friend, put him in a boat way out on the horizon, <laughs> And keep sending that metta, that sense of appreciation, and bring the boat closer. In time, he learned how to transfer that feeling of appreciation and calmness and tranquility and love from that inanimate experience to that person. And then subsequently grew to learn how to express love and appreciation to all beings but it sometimes takes a little creative work to do that. One man here recently came and said to me that he hadn't been connecting with metta for the first several weeks, 
But then one day during the metta, he fell into a, a reflection or a reverie. And being a physicist by nature, he began thinking about uh, Ludwig uh, Beethoven and how many cells and molecules there were in his being and what has happened to them and where they've gotten dispersed throughout the universe and then making some rough calculations and figuring out how many of the air molecules of the carbon dioxide that Beethoven breathed out went into plants that subsequently had nourished this person's life. You know, some physicists get <laughs> really uh, proliferating minds. But that was his connection to, that was his entry into seeing and feeling the interconnection of all life. How we are all connected, not just here in this room, not just all the beings that are alive on earth, but those who ever have lived. We're also connected to them. And all those that ever will live, we will be connected to them. If you want to look at it through the scientific lens of, such as the physicists did, you can see that we really owe a lot of appreciation to everything that has ever been. Traditionally, when we practice metta, metta addresses the four major areas of sources of unhappiness in our life. The four pervasions of metta are to confront or to meet these areas of our life. The areas of fear and anxiety that we have due to danger or enemies or difficulties, either within ourselves or externally, whether it's uh, thieves and uh, corrupt governments and uh, guns and guns and knives and bombs, or whether it's our own enemies, our own envy, jealousy, frustration, disappointment, <laughs> impermanence, impatience. Secondly, addressing the area of our emotions and the distress that we often feel when our emotions have the upper hand. When we get caught in difficult, unpleasant mental states. Thirdly, we address the area of pain, disease, and the tremendous amount of unhappiness that can come in relationship to our body. Its health or lack of it, its aging, its appearance, tremendous amount of unhappiness in that relationship. And fourth, we address the area of self-esteem. The area of life, the feelings we have about ourselves in our ability or lack of it in taking care of ourselves. You know, being able to care for ourselves physically, whether it's just getting up and getting around, bathing ourselves, providing for ourselves financially, economically, uh, and psychological well-being. There are a lot of beings that cannot do this for themselves, whether they're physically handicapped or mentally handicapped or live in 
cultures where there's not the ability to take care of themselves with a lot of self-respect. So when we practice metta, we acknowledge our wish to be safe, to be happy, to be healthy, and to be uh, independent or autonomous, free of dependence on others. What we feel we need in order to be happy or in order to love or be loved or to experience love sometimes includes those qualities of mind or heart which are approximately metta or sometimes not even approximately but we call it love anyway. And so it's helpful to begin to recognize other qualities of mind or heart which sometimes masquerade as metta, true, genuine caring for oneself or others. And almost universally, uh, when we practice metta, we'll come across these um, experiences that uh, feel good or are close to metta, but not quite. Sometimes the misconception or the misunderstanding of metta um, interferes, so to speak. One area, or one kind of relationship, mental state, quality of heart, that we sometimes get caught in, is a kind of a, a, the love that we feel in a family. And maybe it's the love that a parent feels for his or her child. When that child is young, immature, and totally dependent on the parent. There is, of course, a caring, an unselfish caring for that, the welfare of the other. And there is a, um, an affirmation of the other's uh, essence or life. But the, the, the recipient um, can't, can't, can't do anything about it. Can't, can't, do, can't act in any particular way to get it, to get your love or to, to refuse it. And if it gets love, it experiences bliss. And if it doesn't get love, well, it's, it just feels miserable, alone, isolated. Usually sets caring, where we really care for that dependent being, is only to a very few people in our lives. Maybe children, maybe aged parents, maybe uh, physically or uh, mentally or emotionally handicapped individuals, then we have that relationship of responsibility and obligation, which we sometimes call love. Sometimes is genuine metta, but sometimes not. Sometimes our genuine metta is mixed with a sense of obligation, responsibility, a burden. Another kind of familial caring is the care that one feels in guiding or instructing another. 
When someone is under our guidance, whether it's a, a student or a parent uh, guiding their growing children, sometimes the care or the quality of care or the quality of that relationship takes on a judging, um, whether it can be a punitive relationship or an approving relationship. If that person acts in a certain way, they get uh, rewarded. And we can call that love, we can call that care, but there's, a, there's a, a difference between that kind of love or care and metta. Because metta doesn't depend on the response of the recipient. But sometimes teachers care for their students may depend on how well the students do. Sometimes. I know I feel that sometimes. Another kind of familial caring is the care and love that we sometimes feel between brothers, sisters, uh, comrades, uh, those that we have a, a mutual interest with, those who we share um, responsibility or care, respect with. And usually uh, this too is limited to a few beings. We rarely feel that brotherly or sisterly love and care for everyone equally. And so that kind of love is a limitation. There, there is a condition imposed or implied in that love. So these uh, kinds of love or care are limited forms or approximations of metta. Then there's the whole field of romantic love. That which in the popular culture is called love. <clears throat> and I want to mention a couple kinds. Excuse me. They're familiar to us. We've all experienced them at one time or another. And we might have called them love. And we still might um, try to believe that they're real metta sometimes. And the first of these is erotic love, where we're really attracted to someone or something based on just sexual desire. We call that love sometimes. But the intention is not so much selfless benevolence uh, feelings. <clears throat> Rather, it's something else. <laughs> And such, such caring for the other may not come from a feeling of benevolence at all, but it may come from a feeling of uh, loneliness or omnipotence or feeling deficient or feeling powerful. Can still, those feelings can fuel that connection of desire for another. Usually there's quite a high, excited feeling in that kind of uh, love. And I was recently, well actually it was last year, I was sent an advertisement, Nike put out an advertisement for women's uh, shoes of some sort. And it was called Falling in Love, a Passion Play, Act One. Act One is Lust, subtitled, I think I love you, who are you anyway? And the write-up goes like this. Here it is, 
the big wow, the big G, the big yes, yes, yes that you've been waiting for. This is where you find someone or something and believe they are better, greater, cuter, wiser, more wonderful than anything you've ever known. Lust isn't a sin, it's a necessity. For with, <laughs> for with lust as our guide, we can imagine our bodies moving the way we want our bodies to move. We can do marathons with our feet, lift pounds with our arms, have stars in our eyes and do a nifty tango. <laughs> and you think, I have no need for food, I have no need for sleep, I have no needs other than occasionally chewing a breath mint. <laughs> you are the best thing that's ever happened to me, probably because you haven't happened yet. <laughs> haven't we all had that feeling about someone, something, believing that they are going to be the, um, the answer to our dreams? Obviously, this isn't authentic metta, but we sometimes, <laughs> we sometimes call it love. A second kind of romantic love is not so base as erotic love, but it's euphoric love, similar. And it's that kind of feeling that gets evoked or provoked or stimulated in a lot of the popular love songs, popular fiction, movies, uh, things like that. And here is where we uh, hold up some idealization of someone and believe that they can offer us a sense of satisfaction and fulfillment, contentment, completion. And often such person or such an idealization uh, precipitates a feeling of falling in love. And we call it that, falling in love. But really that love is a craving for some sort of fusion with another person where we, where we lose our own boundaries and we just kind of swim in the great interconnection between us. This is act two of falling in love, the passion play. It's called euphoria or oh yippee, you're mine. <laughs> you feel funny inside, you feel funny outside. You feel you could do anything and no one would dare laugh at you. This love you will treasure. You will not put it in the basement next to your rowing machine. <laughs> and you will not take this love for granted and you say, I feel so good, I feel so strong, I feel actually attractive and I could learn to live with that feeling. Oh, let us sing and dance. Oh joy, oh rapture. <laughs> this too. This too we have all experienced, somehow. Interesting thing about these two forms of uh, romantic love. They have all of the components of deep samadhi. <laughs> except right intention. Hey, single pointed focus on an unchanging object giving us great delight and a sense of satisfaction, fulfillment, and completion. That's samadhi. Other than wrong intention, wrong motivation. Another kind of love which we sometimes uh, come across or try to experience or hear about in the spiritual search is uh, some kind of divine love. The, the, that, that mystical union with the whole, 
the all, the one. We hear about it. We have some experiences that might even be it, for all we know. And it's a, and for those who come in contact with that kind of energy, it's, it's extraordinary. It's profound. It's a feeling of oneness, of fusion, of no boundaries between oneself and any others. And it's a recognition of the underlying unity that we all are, one. This is it. And one can really feel one's participation or beingness within it. I recently went to my uh, acupuncturist and he was telling me, he went to back in the late 60s or early 70s when he was um, active in his spiritual search or just undertaking his spiritual journey. He went to see one of the then current spiritual gurus who was going to be speaking somewhere and went to the, got the ticket, went to the appointed place, uh, huge hall, hundreds of people and waited the appropriate hour or two after the starting time when the, when the guru came out on the stage, sat down in his chair, <clears throat> quietly looked out over the crowd and said, I'm so in love with you. Got up and walked off. That was the talk. That was it. And my acupuncture said, that's the only spiritual guru's talk he ever remembered. I asked the other teachers, or one of the other teachers, I said, do you suppose I ought to try that for a Dhamma talk tonight? <laughs> I don't think it would work here. I don't think it would work so good. <laughs> these forms of love, these forms of connection that we feel with others, caring that we feel for others, they all have some limitation within them, whether it's limited to the person, limited by the recipient's response, limited by the recipient's dependence upon us. Not that these are wrong. We have all these relationships in our life too. The heart has its seasons, it has its reasons, it has its own songs. But metta is its own. Metta has its own quality, its own flavor. Metta is without expectation of reciprocity, without expecting the other person to behave in any particular way, or the recipient to behave in any particular way. They don't have to do anything to receive it. It's certainly not a sensual, um, erotic experience necessarily and it won't fade away a love that's real won't fade away it won't change in time it won't change with the behavior and it won't shrink from any corner of the universe one way to get a sense of the experience of developed and mature metta is to to take a look at the contribution that each of the 
concentrative factors of mind plays in the development of metta. You know, the five factors of concentration, or the five jhana factors, are those factors of mind which directly oppose the five hindrances. And if we look at how metta puts aside all the hindrances, what qualities of mind come about? The first is the connecting of the mind or the application of the mind motivated by benevolence, motivated, motivated by care. And here is when we really energize our life so that we stay involved with every facet of our life where we're not asleep to what's going on in our life, where there's a deep connection and recognition of that connection with all other beings and all things. And in that, there's no sense of being separate or alienated or alone. We can feel safe within this finely woven tapestry of life. As we sustain our attention, or the sustaining of the attention being the second factor, we begin to recognize our relationship to all others, where we're able to stay with another, to stay connected to another, and to open and to feel that vulnerability that comes when you try to open to another. It's really difficult for two people to meet. It's difficult to meet ourselves, as you know, as you're trying to discover here. And it takes a lot of staying with ourselves in order to really open to who we are. What happens when two people try to meet each other? They've both got that difficult opening going on. It's a good thing we do fall in love. It provides the glue that holds us together long enough to get over our fear. so that we can sustain our attention, so that we can stay through the opening process. And when we can, when we can connect, stay, uh, sustain, open, allow ourselves to be vulnerable, then we can really tap into the joy and delight that comes from being connected to another, or from just being connected to ourself. And this is where you can get the really effervescent, sparkling uh, relationships to others. Where we can sometimes feel in the presence of the divine. Like just walking in the forest or being with some gurus or teachers. You can feel that quality of delight and joy in being within that relationship. And the fourth factor is happiness or comfort of mind and body. When metta is developed and mature, we feel a very subtle but profound sense of physical and mental well-being. Where we really feel that everything is okay. Just the way it is. It may not even be perfect, but in that it is perfect. It's okay this way. And in that okayness, in that unperturbed but engaged connection with life, then we can see the beauty of everything. 
we can see its perfection. We can feel safe. And the fifth factor of mind is single-pointedness of mind. The ability to be grounded and centered in the midst of life, relating to all conditions with integrity. Not being swept about by the currents of change, the winds of circumstance, but remaining centered and still, where our inner reality or our inner truth manifests inappropriate external behavior, where our inner self is experienced and expressed outwardly. Metta is an action. It's a generative action from an appreciative mind. It's an appreciative relationship with all of life, animate or inanimate, all that we come in contact with. When developed, we can live in intimate harmony with one another while remaining open and vulnerable. When metta is predominant in our life, it provides the motivation for our actions. Caring for ourselves and others becomes the motive, the motivation for whatever we do in life. So I invite you all to turn on your love light. Leave it on. We need it in this practice. Let's sit for a couple of minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.